Philippians chapter 2 is a passage we're going to look at this morning. I'm calling the message, Can't We All Just Get Along? And I was the youngest of four rowdy boys in a family growing up here in Southern California. And uh, as the youngest of those four boys, let me tell you, we didn't always get along. We um, argued and we competed and we fought pretty hard. Four boys. You have to pity my mom. No girls, four boys. Like the time that I found a knife out in the road and I showed my brother and he said, oh, you think you're pretty hot. And I said, well, I could take you. And it got into a fight and I stabbed him in the arm with it. And he picked up a pencil and stabbed me in the arm with the pencil. So I really felt led at that point. (laughs) Or the time I threw my brother through the front window of our house onto the front lawn while my parents were having a date together and they came home and we got in trouble. They fixed the window that week. The following week, my brother threw me through the same window that had been fixed. So that's just a a synopsis, a little snapshot of us growing up. In the Christian family, there's all sorts of different ones of us, spiritual babes in Christ, some adolescents in the Lord, some more mature. But we don't always get along. Uh, There can be friction even in the Christian family. Heard about a dad who came home and he was relaxing, reading the newspaper, and his daughter and her friends were out in the next room and they were playing, and as they were playing, their voices got a little bit louder and the more rowdy, and they started arguing, and the voices got louder, and they pushed and shoved and called each other names, and finally, dad said, you girls, stop it. And very innocently, his daughter said to her father, it's okay, daddy, we're just playing church. Now... Getting along as Christians hasn't always been easy. If you take a quick glimpse at history, you find that that's the way it was. That's the way it was, and that's the way in some cases it is. Not as an excuse, but I want to a little bit normalize this. If you think of the 12 apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, did they always get along? No, they often fought as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom, who would sit at the right hand. You go into the book of Acts and you find that there was a council at Jerusalem and there was division over what constituted salvation. There was Peter and Paul who argued in Galatia and at Antioch over dealing with Gentiles versus Jews. There was a problem between Paul and Barnabas. In fact, it was such an argument, such a contention, that even this great apostle Paul and Barnabas split company and went in two different directions in ministry. You look through history and you find there were inquisitions and crusades and there were councils and denominations have formed. U.S. News and World Report in an article not too long ago said there are now 22,000 different Christian denominations and sects worldwide. 22,000 different denominations and sects. Well, Philippians chapter 2 is how to get along in the family. And whether this is your family and you've come 
recently to this church or you're thinking after today, I'm going to leave this church and find another family. Either way, these are all principles that will tell us how to get along in the family. Now, I want you to understand something before we jump into chapter 2. And by the way, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 forms our text. But just to give you a little bit of background and setting, Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church. The Philippian church was a great group of people. Paul loved them very deeply. However, there were some pressures from the outside and from the inside. From the outside, there was the pressure of false teachers that were trying to infiltrate the church and there was problem of fighting members on the inside of the church that were splitting it up those two pressures caused paul to include this paragraph i believe and allude to it other times during the book but i want to show you that if you'd go over to chapter three for just a moment i know we haven't even jumped into two yet but look at chapter three a couple verses finally my brethren rejoice in the lord For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. It doesn't mean poodles and Afghans and uh, furry little creatures that you have at your house. But he's speaking about, well, notice, he'll tell you, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. These were legalistic people from the outside telling the group, the church, that they had to do certain things in order to be saved Or they weren't saved. Those were the false prophets from the outside. Now go over to chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy, my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement, etc., etc., Here's a couple of women, a couple of members in the church that are causing division because they have two different opinions about how something ought to be done. So those two pressures, one from the outside, one from the inside, caused tremendous pressure to not get along with member against member in the church. Something you will notice, I'm sure you have noticed already, that the church is not a group of perfect people. It's a group of redeemed, imperfect people. I know you've heard it a million times before. You'll never find a perfect church. If you do, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Because it's filled with redeemed, imperfect people. But that's what God calls us to be a part of. Remember when Jesus stood in Nazareth in the synagogue, his own hometown, and he stood up and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah? And he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Did you hear that bunch of people? Poor, brokenhearted, captive, blind, oppressed. That's a messy group of people. That's the church. We're all together, all of that baggage, all of those backgrounds to be in one, one group. Disunity in the church indicates a spiritual disease. Disunity 
over a prolonged period of time, especially over incidentals, speaks to a spiritual disease. So this morning, what I want to look at are two things. Getting along in the family of God. The basics of getting along and the basis for getting along. What are the basics? What do we do and not do? And then why do we do it? Why should we get along? What are the basis for getting along with each other? So what I want you to do, instead of beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, is we're going to begin in verse 3. Because verse 1 and 2 give you the basis, and I want to cover that at the second half. The first part, verse 3 and 4, the basics of getting along. Let nothing be done. Well, let's go read all the verses together. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Those two verses, verse 3 and 4, give us the basics of getting along with each other. Two ways not to be, two ways not to live, versus two ways that we are to be toward one another. Two ways we are to live. Um, you're you're going to note that uh, the first two reasons, that is, the reasons um, that we don't get along, the way we are not to be with each other, are the same two reasons that got Satan kicked out of heaven. The very same reasons that Satan didn't get along with God are the same two reasons we begin with that we ought not to be with each other. You remember Isaiah 14, which describes Satan's motivation in heaven before he fell? He said, I will ascend. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. What is that? It's exactly what these verses describe. Selfish ambition and conceit. In other words, we are never more like the devil than we, when we display these two characteristics that I'm going to describe. And we are never more like Jesus than when we exemplify the second two characteristics that I'm going to describe. So here's the basics. Here's uh, two things we ought not to do. Number one, don't live selfishly. And number two, don't live pridefully. Don't live selfishly. You want to get along with people, don't live selfishly, don't live pridefully. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Stop right there. Do you know anybody who's selfish? Have you ever met any selfish person ever in your life? Let me ask another question. Do any of you have children? Or parents? Or husbands? Or wives? Or friends? If you know any human being you have encountered at some point in your life, selfishness because one of the basic Notable features of all humanity is this, selfish ambition. It's a natural human trait. Calvin Miller said it's part of our nature to say, Our Father who art in heaven, gimme, gimme, gimme. That's human nature. 
The word here, selfish ambition, is a word that means to cause a division, to cause a division in a group of people to get your own way. To cause a division so as to get your own way. That is a pushy person. Heard about a little boy. Uh, He and his sister got a a toy horse for Christmas, a little wooden horse, a rocking horse. It was a, a mutual gift that they were to enjoy. Uh, it was brand new. So they were both sitting on it at the same time trying to ride the thing. And finally, the little boy turned to his sister and said, if one of us would get off, there'd be more room for me. Selfish ambition. It's the me first philosophy that ruins, well, it ruins marriages, friendships, and churches. Selfish ambition. Number two, don't live pridefully. Look at the second part of that sentence in verse 3. Let nothing be done through not only selfish ambition, but conceit. Now, if you have a King Jimmy version, the old King James, it uses a great term, vain glory. Vain glory. Empty glory. And here our word is translated conceit. The Greek word, kenodoxian, means... Um, the empty pride of living for people's favorable opinions. Did you get that? The empty pride that comes from seeking other people's favorable opinions. It refers to somebody who has an exaggerated opinion of himself or his own importance. Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 3, that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think more highly than we ought to think. Do you remember the word that Paul and Peter and John, when they wrote epistles in the New Testament, one word that they most often used to describe themselves when they would introduce their writings? Servants. Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, or a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more literal translation is bond servant or bond slave. Bond slave. So rather than having an exaggerated opinion of one's own importance and living favorably for the opinions of others, he just says, let me just tell you something. I'm a slave. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I uh, am looking at um, a room full of people right now. And I wonder, and you answer this, are you servants? Or are you shoppers? Are you Christians or are you consumers? What's it all about? Because if we want to all get along, whether it's here or any other assembly, it takes the absence of selfish ambition and the absence of pride or conceit. There's two ways, somebody once said, to enter a room. You can enter a room and go, well, here I am. Not that you would actually say that, but you can... Enter a room as if to say, here I am. Or you enter the room this way. Ah, there you are. It's not about me. It's all about serving you. So let nothing be done. There's the two negative things. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So don't live selfishly. Don't live pridefully. I was reading an interesting little quip. I haven't observed it, not having the experience, but this article said that when a group of thoroughbred horses is attacked, 
Their defense is to form a circle with their heads facing each other, and then they all kick outward at the attacking enemy. A group of donkeys, when attacked, however, all face outward and kick each other. So what's the best way to have a church? Thoroughbreds or donkeys? It's not to kick each other, but to kick at the real enemy. Um, That's the basics of getting along. Don't live selfishly. Uh, Don't live pridefully. Here's the second two parts of the basics. These are now on the positive. Do live humbly is the third. Do live humbly. Uh, Look at our text. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but there's the hinge word. Now he's getting positive. In lowliness of mind. That's humility. Lowliness of mind. Pride will make God your enemy. Did you know that? You want to be on God's bad side? Immediately be prideful. Because the Bible says God resists the proud. But you want to get on God's good side quickly? Be humble. God resists the proud, but the text says, but he gives grace to the humble. So do live humbly. Lowliness of mind. That is the way you think about yourself. The way you project yourself. Now I gotta tell you something. Lowliness of mind, 2000 years ago among the Greek culture was not considered a virtue, but a vice. They looked very poorly on humble people. Humility was something to be despised. The Greeks were proud people and they prided themselves in being a superior culture, not like the barbarians. In fact, whenever they would conquer a group of people, they called the conquered people humble-minded people. We conquered them. They're lowly mind. They're humble-minded. They believed in self-assertiveness, self-confidence, self-esteem, not lowliness of mind. Paul, on the other hand, takes a despised cultural idea and elevates it, not from a vice, but to a virtue. You want to get along with others, be lowly in mind. Look at chapter uh, 2, verse 5 for a moment, and you'll discover why he does this. Let this mind, see that word? There it is again. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul exonerates this as a virtue because Jesus practiced it. This is what he did. So you want to get along with others. Don't be selfish. Don't be prideful. Be humble-minded. Now, the Greeks would have loved Clint Eastwood. Go ahead. Make my day. They would have loved the Terminator. I'll be back. They would have loved all these heroes of of, uh, conquering that our American pantheon has produced. But Paul said, don't take your cues from the world, but Jesus, who was lowly and humble in mind. Now, let's apply that to us. Lowliness of mind, humility, is the grease that keeps the wheels of the church 
running smoothly. It keeps us flowing smoothly. Like Jesus, don't climb higher to be more noticed, but be willing to climb lower. He humbled himself and became a man. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's our example. One of my favorite authors has been F.B. Meyer, and he writes about this. He writes very clearly about this issue when he says, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other, and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the more easily we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other, and that it's not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower. So you want a rewarding church experience? Get down. And I don't mean get down with your bad self. I mean get, get humble. Become lowly. Become lowly. Now, how do you cultivate humility? Let me give you a few ways. Because you can't just tell a person, be humble. But I can tell you how to cultivate it. Number one, prayer. Prayer will cultivate humility. Doesn't that make sense? When you pray, you don't depend on yourself. You're saying, I depend on God. Any prideful person doesn't pray much. They don't need God that much. So you want to cultivate humility. You show your dependence by prayer. Number two, genuine worship. Genuine worship. When we gather together as a church, genuine worship will cultivate humility. It's a determination that says, I'm not going to just sit here and watch what happens on the platform. I'm going to engage and sing these songs whether I feel like it or not because this is God that I'm worshiping. That will cultivate humility. Number three, do something not required. Take on a task that you're not assigned. We can always say, it's not my job to do that. I don't have the gift of helps. Or you can say, I'm going to be a bond servant. I'm going to pick up that paper. I'm going to clean that toilet. I'm going to help these folks or this person or whatever out. Take on a task you're not assigned. And number four, to cultivate humility, encourage people. Affirm them. Thank them. We all wouldn't be where we are today without the help of others around us. And when you genuinely encourage, affirm, and thank them, it helps. So to grow tall spiritually, learn to bow genuinely before God and before others. So don't live selfishly. Don't live pridefully. Do live humbly. And number four, do live respectfully. This is all the basics of getting along. Do live respectfully. Look at our text one more time. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. We've covered that. But in lowliness of mind, we've covered that. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Today, in our culture, it is standard fare to exalt this virtue, self-esteem. We say, you need good self-esteem. And it's everywhere. It's even appeared a few years ago on uh, uh, one of the characters on Saturday Night Live, the guy who said, 
I'm good enough, I'm nice enough, and doggone it, people like me. You know, he said that in the mirror over and over again to himself to develop his own self-esteem. Let each esteem others better than himself. That flies in the face of what we've been taught culturally. The Williams translation puts it this way. Practice treating one another as a superior. Practice treating one another as superiors. How do we do that? Well, we read it in verse 4. Let each of you look out. The word means focus carefully. Watch and observe others, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let me put it to you this way. If you and I are always living in such a way where I am putting myself first and you put yourself first, we're going to collide. We're going to collide. But if when we're together, if I'm looking out for you and your interests and you're looking out for me and my interests, we're going to build a church. We're going to build a church. Look out. Keep your eyes on. Focus carefully. Attention on something in the other's life. There was a boy who was talking to his friend, his little buddy, and uh, he just said off the cuff, he goes, wouldn't you hate to wear glasses all the time? And the other guy said, I don't know. I don't think I'd mind it if they were like my grandma's glasses. You see, he said, my grandma has the ability to be able to see when somebody's hurting or in pain or in need and knows exactly what to do to help them. And so I said to my grandma, Grandma, how can you see that way all the time? She said, it must be my age. Ever since I've gotten older and older, I just it's the way I see life and people. The first guy was scratching his head and he said, you're right, it must be your glasses. May God give us those kind of glasses. May God give us a transplant so we can focus and see others' hurts, pains, anxieties, And we live respectfully. Well, that's the basics of getting along. Two ways not to live and two ways to live. Now, what's what's the basis for it? Why why should we do that? What is the purpose for it? I'm going to take you back now to verse 1 and 2. I'm going to give you the reasons. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of his love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Here's the first reason. We should be living this way because the world won't provide that for you. The world won't provide that kind of an environment. That's the first reason. You live in a world that's hostile to Christians. You see the first word of chapter 2, what is it? It's what? Therefore. Now, don't you think it's odd to begin a chapter with therefore? And let me just tell you that Paul didn't write chapter 2. Somebody else did hundreds of years later. Chapter divisions and verse numbers were given years after. It was just one seamless document, one letter. And that's important. The first word, therefore, ties us back to a previous thought. We've given you a rule so far in Bible study, if you remember it. Whenever there's a therefore, find out what it's there for. And it's there for a very important reason. He's beginning this chapter, this thought, tying it to a previous thought. And what is the previous thought? We'll go back to verse 27. 
Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, get along, be in unity with each other, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. Therefore, you see, what he's saying is this. The world won't provide that kind of love, that kind of environment, The only place you're to get it, the only place to expect it is among us as we gather together in the church as saints in fellowship. Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the way he has done that for us in part is by providing us with a family, a church. So they're happy. What is the uh, number one most popular daily TV show, genre, TV genre, the the most popular daily format? Soap operas. Now, what are the themes of soap operas? Disunity, hatred, avarice, deceit, envy, jealousy, right? That's, that's, unless... There's people the people that are having affairs usually get along with each other in these things for a while and they break up. Now that's the most popular show on daily television. That's the reason it looks so awkward for Christians in an assembly to be fighting each other because it resembles the world so much. And the uh, the unbeliever looks from the outside and goes to the average church and says, "I, I can get this on a soap opera." I don't need to come and get this. You remember years ago the PTL scandal? You you know, all the players involved and all the the uproar that it caused. There was a news article that was produced during that time by Robert Barr, Associated Press writer, and the article was called People That Love. It was a tongue-in-cheek statement. He said, TV evangelists profess their affection, but they throw bombshells in the PTL battle. No word, he said, is more often mentioned in the battle of television evangelists than love. However, and he goes on to speak of the lawsuits and the words and the accusations that were thrown. So because the world won't provide it, here's a second reason, because you belong to Christ. Because you belong to Christ. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... One of Paul's favorite terms for being a Christian is being in Christ. By the way, the word if, it should be translated since. Therefore, since there is consolation by being in Christ. And what does it mean to be in Christ? It means he accepts us. It means he forgives us. So on that basis that Christ loves us and accepts us and forgives us is the same basis we had to get along with others and love them and accept them and forgive them. It's the same basis. Remember what Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
So on that same basis that I am consoled by being in Christ is the reason that I forgive and accept others. As Paul said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Listen, folks. People can be pretty nasty and brutish and thick-headed and say mean and stupid things, right? That's precisely why they need to be forgiven. That's precisely why they need to be forgiven. And who better to forgive them than us? I heard about a, a, a gravestone in a cemetery just outside of New York. It has one word on it. There's no name, no date of birth, no date of death, no epitaph given. Just one word, forgiven. Can you think of a better word to put on somebody's uh, stone that they would leave than that? Forgiven. I can think of one other word that matches. Forgiving. They go together. Forgiven. So I'm forgiving because I've been forgiven. So the world won't provide it. We belong to Christ. That's the second reason. Here's the third reason. Because his love is the catalyst for getting along. His love is the catalyst. Look on in the verse. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love. You know whose love that's speaking about? Christ's love. Jesus' love. That's the catalyst. His love for me. God's love is one of the most comforting things there is. Like the song says, just to think that God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. You know the fairy tale about the beautiful princess that was to kiss the ugly toad and the ugly toad would turn back into the handsome prince. Kids love that story, but you ever thought about it from the princess viewpoint? Would you want to get your lips on a grimy, greasy, green toad? What princess in her right mind would stoop down and say, oh, I'm going to kiss that toad? It's great for the toad. Here comes that beautiful princess. That's a fairy tale, but God, through Christ, stooped down to kiss us toads. Please don't take offense to that. If you take offense to that, you really don't know your own condition. That's what he did. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave everything. His love is the catalyst. Now, the Bible says this. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. This is what it means. You and I now, as Christians, have an enormous capacity to love. We have an enormous capacity to love. We don't always do it. We don't always show it. But we have an enormous capacity given to us by God to show love. And because we have been recipients of his love, we should also, Paul says, be distributors of his love. So because the world won't provide it. Because you belong to Christ, because his love is the catalyst. Here's a fourth reason, because you're part of a spiritual family. You're part of a spiritual family. It says, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of his love, any fellowship of the spirit, any affection and mercy. It's not just that the world won't provide it. And so here we are in this place where the broken and the captives are all gathered together. But now we have become part of a partnership. 
spiritual family. The word koinonia is in that phrase. If there's any fellowship of the spirit, koinonia, it means a joint partnership in something of common interest. In other words, we share spiritual blessings. We share spiritual resources. And in sharing that as a family, we have what it says here, affection and mercy. Affection and mercy. As members of the family, our compassion toward one another ought to be high. Our finger pointing toward one another ought to be low. So, Paul says, fulfill my joy. Make me really happy as an apostle by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So, question, can't we all just get along? Answer, yes, if, if we learn to value one another. Placing value on other based upon what we just read. I want to close with this story that I have been given. There was a young man returning from war. When he got to his home country, he called his mother long distance. They were excited to hear each other's voice. It had been a long time. And they talked for a while. Eventually, the young man said to his mom, Mom, I have my best friend in the whole world that I want to bring home with me. He saved my life. He was one of my buddies out in the field. And when a hand grenade was thrown into our foxhole, he was wounded, saving my life. As a result, he continued tentatively, he has only one eye, one arm, one leg. He doesn't have any family except ours, Mom. He said this with hope in his voice. I told him that he can come home with us. I would like your permission for him to come and be part of our family and live with us from now on. Can he? His voice trailed off, anxiously awaiting her reply. You bring him home, son, she said, and in a few days we'll be able to find a place for him that I know he'll be happy. I'm so anxious to see you, she said, trying to hold back the tears that were welling up in her eyes. But he pleaded, Mother, I want him to come home and be a part of our family. Not to go anywhere else, but to live with us. Son, you're so young, she reasoned. It would be all right for a short time, but after a while, he'd get tired of always having to be here, and we'd get tired of always having to care for him. You can bring him home for three or four weeks, she conceded, and during that time, we'll find a place. You understand, don't you? Yes, mother. His voice sounded far away. I think I do. They said their goodbyes and hung up. Mother was excited. She would see her son in a few days, but the next day a government official stopped at that home with tragic news. Her son had taken his own life. The mother was obviously shocked and perplexed and wondered how could this have happened. In a few days the son's body arrived in their hometown, numb with grief, she went down to view the body of her precious son. She looked into the coffin and then understood he had only one eye, one arm, and one leg. He had tested her love, and her love had fallen short. Having become crippled, 
he no longer felt he had any value. 